Before we begin with the reading of uh, God's Word from Jonah chapter 1, which, by the way, is in your bulletin in the uh, 1984 version or edition of the New International Version, please uh, feel free to use whatever translation you brought in your Bible. I hope you uh, bring them. But in any case, it's in your bulletin. If you prefer to follow along with that, that's what I'll be reading. Um, and before I read this passage from God's Word, you remember from two weeks ago, the setting. The setting was that Jonah lives in the time of uh, uh, Jeroboam II, the last of the great kings, if you will, the powerful kings of the northern kingdom. Uh, that dynasty founded four generations earlier under Jehu, who was not a great king and was not a powerful man, uh, but he had overthrown the, the uh, dynasty of Ahab, King Ahab, uh, and uh, that wicked, wicked king, and, uh, and had done what God had commanded him to do, to, uh, to bring to an end the stain upon Israel that was the house of Ahab and Jezebel, his uh, wicked uh, Canaanitish Sidonian, actually, king, a uh, queen, uh, the daughter of Ishbael, the, uh, um, uh, the, the king of Sidon. And um, uh, Yahweh worship was nearly extirpated from the northern kingdom, nearly wiped out. And, uh, and uh, Jehu came along and, and did what God had said. He mounted a military coup. He was a tank commander, tank battalion, and as it were, charioteer um, uh, captain. And, and uh, he successfully, with God's anointing him to do so, eliminated the uh, the uh, dynasty of Ahab, and God promised him, you remember, uh, as recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 10, uh, that, that his dynasty would therefore endure to the fourth generation. Now, Jehu still did evil in the sight of the Lord. He still continued to have the worship at those counterfeit temples in Dan and Bethel in the north and south of his kingdom, uh, which had been set up by the first Jeroboam, son of Nebat, the very first king of that northern kingdom, who rebelled against Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and broke away that northern kingdom and established those false temples. And every successive king, without exception, of the northern kingdom continued that worship. Counterfeit temple, counterfeit altar, counterfeit priesthood, a sin against the most holy God. Now we have Jeroboam II. And in his day, God brings about the final culmination of his gracious word to Jehu, four generations before his Jeroboam II's great-grandfather. And he sends Jonah, whose name means dove, and dove can be taken two ways. In Christ, it's that which is, means peace. And it is a symbol of that in the Old Testament. But it also can symbolize senselessness. And in Hosea we're told Ephraim is a senseless dove. And Jonah's name means dove. Which will he be? The story will unfold and you decide. I believe he begins one way and finishes another. But we'll save that for lesson four. <laughs> now, <clears throat> right about this time in geopolitics, a lot is going on. 
There are droughts and famines and flood and pestilence and invasion from Mongol-related uh, peoples from the north. That, and then uh, the uh, uh, succession uh, uncertainties at the time of uh, dynastic succession in Assyria, which had been a growing power and had subdued Babylon and subdued many of the other nations of the area and was threatening threatening and had previously threatened the northern kingdom but now it's on the ropes as it were it's about to be dissolved it seems like it's on the verge of disintegration their king Asherdan has rivals and he reigns in his two twin capitals of Asher and Nineveh as the later Persian kings would reign from summer and winter capitals in Persepolis and Susa Nineveh was in danger. Nineveh itself was on the verge of collapse. Asherdan's reign is in doubt. Jonah's not unhappy about that because in Hosea's prophecy, a prophecy by, uh, by one that God had sent to the northern kingdom, he had said that Israel would uh, eat the bread of affliction in Assyria. That meant a coming exile. Just as Moses in Deuteronomy had said would come. And it would be an exile of the northern ten tribes, all but the remnant that would run south and find safety in the southern kingdom of Judah when, when the northern kingdom would be taken away. All the rest of the ten northern tribes would never be heard from Again, now I realize that those um, who uh, are in the Mormon church claim that they came to North America, but that's not the testimony of the Bible. Testimony of the Bible is they're not heard of or heard from again. It's a terrible thing to fall under the judgment of God. How did it come so far? Because they didn't respond to the repeated overtures of God's mercy and grace and love and the loving kindness of God and his long-suffering and patience has an end. Jonah knew it. He'd been sent to the northern kingdom to the court. He was popular there, I'm sure. He said to Jeroboam II, take back all the lands of the old kingdom of David, an empire. At least in the northern part, everything but what I've, God had given to uh, the king of the southern kingdom, the Davidic dynasty, because God's sure mercies to David would not fail. Why? Because they were better people. No. No. But because God would be faithful to his promise. He would not break his oath. So Jonah comes to the court and he says, take back all that land. God will help you do it. And Jeroboam II did. He became by far the greatest king the northern kingdom ever had. There was a renaissance economically. There was a renaissance militarily. There was a renaissance politically. There was a renaissance in the arts. There was a renaissance in culture there was a renaissance in everything except the spiritual. A relationship with their covenant God, Yahweh. Jonah knew that. 
Jonah knew that. But he was a patriot, I'm sure, much perhaps as I have been for my country. Love it dearly. It's so easy to love our country in spite of its faults and even love it in its faults and if we're not careful for its faults. Now we begin the reading of God's Word in Jonah chapter 1. Hear then the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go and preach to the great city of Nineveh. Preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone down below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them. And they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. For the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord 
provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. As far as God's word in Arrington Shore, let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, instruct our hearts today. Convict us. Instruct us. Encourage us. But above all, oh God, transform us. We would see Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. As we said two weeks ago, if there are just two stories people are are familiar with in the Old Testament, maybe in the whole Bible, it, it could very well be that those two stories are likely to be Noah and his ark, <laughs> and Jonah and his what? Well, right. Now, by the way, the Old Testament book of Jonah never says whale. In the Hebrew, it's dakagathol. It means a great sea creature. Some say fish, but it's more than that. It's a, it's a range of meanings, and it was specially, we're told, prepared by God for such a purpose as this. How long it had been lurking and waiting, we don't know. Was it spoken into being at a, at a command of God? We don't know. He had prepared it. Could it have been preserved from the great Leviathans of old? Could have been. We don't know. It was prepared for that. But we don't know what the creature was. Just that it was. And God had prepared it. Back to Jonah, verse 1. Um, we uh, need to remember as a background on these things, there's little understanding when people talk about Noah and Jonah of the meaning of those stories and the God's unfolding epic of redemptive history. Jonah is about much more than a fish, in this case sea creature, swallowing a man. It tells us of a God whose love seeks out the alienated both outside his covenant people and inside what should be the family of faith that reflect his heart for the nations. And we often don't. In this little chapter, well, it's 17 verses, we're taught that God's call to mission is effectual. God's call to mission is effectual. When we say mission, we mean God's mission, not just ours. What God is about in the world and how he intends to use us in accomplishing that. And it teaches us that through the threefold motifs of mercy, purpose, and call. Mercy, purpose, and and call. And I want us to look at each of those three very briefly in turn. First, the mercy of God extends to those most distanced from him. Verse 2, we're told that Nineveh's wickedness rose up before the Lord. It was, as it were, a stench in the nostrils of a holy divine being who cannot look upon evil with equanimity. And cannot dwell with it and do so calmly. No, God's holiness burns away evil. And before we say, well, that was Nineveh. And by the way, Nineveh introduced forms of warfare in their conquests and would bring it to the northern kingdom that were up to that time heretofore absolutely unparalleled in the annals of warfare and have seldom been equaled since. They would come to a city that refused to throw its doors open to them 
built, they developed great siege engines and build up mounds and siege engines and things that hadn't been, uh, the technology for which had not previously been uh, widely used. And, and they would conquer, they would besiege the city until it was uh, run out of water and food. And then they'd move these siege engines right up to it and they'd break through it, it's weak, the city's weakest place, capture it and take all the people into slavery except all the men and boys. Those they would impale. In some cases, leaving them hanging, holding themselves up by their arms um, above a stake. And that they, as they let themselves down, would go down. And in some cases, it was vertical. And you could imagine the agony. They intended it. They intended it to be painful and to endure and the screams to go on for days. They intended that. They wanted to make that hideous example of cruelty. An example for other cities and a deterrent to them so that they would be afraid and would throw open their gates. And it it worked in many cases. These are the Ninevites. Within their own cities, they had, had uh, corruption and conniving and skullduggery. And, and the poor were trodden on in unjustly by the rich. It was a wicked totalitarian regime of which Kim Jong-un of North Korea today would be proud. That says something. So when God says it's wickedness has come up against me, he means it's wickedness has come up against me. And now what is God doing? The word of the Lord comes to his prophet Jonah and says, go to Nineveh, that great city, for its wickedness has come up up before me. Preach against it. Now, you think Jonah would be happy to do that. Gloom and doom for you. You're all going to die. Ha! I like that, huh? You think Jonah might have? No. What's he do? Runs from the Lord. Why? Because he really cares about those people and he doesn't want any harm to come. No, no, that's not why. That's not why at all. He hates them. Because they're so wicked? No, more than that. More than that. Hates them. Because they represent the ones he knows already. One day God will use as his chastening rod against his own people for their recalcitrance and refusal to respond to the gracious dealing of God in their lives. If uh, we were to turn over just a couple of chapters to chapter 4 verse 2 and we'll deal more with this in three weeks Jonah says he prayed to the Lord O Lord is this not what I said when I was still at home that is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abounding in love a God who relents from sending calamity God had announced his name at Sinai, at the founding of the nation, before Moses in the top of the mountain with fire around it, smoke whirling and the winds and the, the earthquake as the mountain shook. 
He announced it again to Elijah and had done so only a century before, um, uh, before Jonah's time. And this is the name of God. Referred to again and again in the scriptures. That God is a God of mercy who relents from judgment. And Jonah knew that. And Jonah didn't like God showing that to anyone else but his people. I like you to be that way to us, to my people. Yeah, I know we do these things and are shrugging, shrugging you off, but, uh, but I want you to be merciful and gracious to my people. But those guys over there, now that's a different story. I, you know, if you're going to be friends with them, I don't want anything to do with it. You know, friend of my enemy is my enemy. Does that apply to God as well? God's mercy extends beyond our thought of where it might. In the text before us, uh, we're reminded of what Paul writes to in the Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse uh, uh, 21. We read, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, I've never impaled anyone. Surely I'm not as bad as the Ninevites. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, I've never enslaved anyone. I'm not as bad as those guys. Was Paul mean? We were that bad. Need to understand it from the standpoint of the perfection of the holiness of God. We don't begin to see the depths of our own sin. If God pulled back the curtain and showed each of us individually our own sin to its full depths all at once, it would crush us. It would crush us. That's why he does it a little at a time. The Bible calls it sanctification. Just as the Israelites were supposed to occupy the promised land a little at a time. So his spirit moves in our lives. He, he transforms us at once by regeneration. The polarization or polarity of our moral compasses reverse, radically reverse, instead of from God to God. That's immediate. That's regeneration. We're justified. We're adopted. But but then progressively we're sanctified all life long and it doesn't end until we see Christ because we will then be like him for we shall see him as he is, the scripture says. Jonah found that out. See, God's mercy extends even to those we casually encounter. Who are those? The sailors. Jonah didn't hate all Gentiles. He didn't mind the sailors on the ship at Joppa. Why? Well, they were Gentiles. but Yeah, but they were just incidental. They were, you see, accessories to the ship. And the ship was a means to an end, a conveyance to Tarshish. By the way, Tarshish is not the Tarsus from which Saul, later Paul, the apostle, comes from in, in Asia Minor modern-day Turkey. No, this Tarshish is in southern Spain, right around the Pillars of Hercules, as they were called then, the Rock of Gibraltar. It's as far away, the opposite end of the Mediterranean, as far away in the known world as jo Jonah could go from Nineveh. Now, why? 
did Jonah do that? He knows he's running from the presence of God. To run from the presence of God, in effect, is to resign your commission in the court of the king of kings. He was a prophet. He was anointed and appointed. He was sent with a commission. And he says, I resign. And he tries to leave. Now he knows God is the God who made the heaven and the earth. He knows it's impossible to run away successfully, so why does he even go? Because he also knows what happens when there's sin in the camp, and he loves, he's a patriot, and unfortunately puts his own national loyalty above his ultimate allegiance to God. And any allegiance, however good and proper, that is derivative from God's, our allegiance to God, any allegiance that is allowed to be placed above God becomes an idolatry. And that's what Jonah had done. And Jonah knew what happened in the days of Joshua after the battle of Jericho. Someone disobeyed. His name was Achan. And hid that which had been prohibited beneath his tent. And at the very next battle, a little city called Ai, Israel was defeated. And 30 of Israel's men were were killed in that battle. There, there were fatal consequences. And God had to deal with the people, with Joshua and his people to cleanse their camp and to put away evil from Israel. And Jonah knew about that. He knew it. He knew the stroke would come and he wanted to distance himself it's kind of like, may lightning strike me on the spot and then the person moves, you know. Well, in this case, he knows the lightning will follow him. He wants to move away from those to whom his ultimate loyalty has been misplaced. The sailors, they were just accoutrements. They were uh, accessories to the vessel. He didn't mind them. He didn't particularly care for them or about them, but at this time. They were just necessary for him to go. But God's mercy extended to them. And his mercy extends to those we would prefer to avoid. Verse 2, Nineveh. Oh boy, was he avoiding that with all his power. The expiration of God's promise to Jehu was just around the corner. In uh, 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, uh, God had said to Jehu, as referred to a little bit earlier, the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in accomplishing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all I had in mind to do, your descendants will sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And here he was, in the fourth generation of Jehu's dynasty. Time was running out. I remember uh, some years ago, perhaps you remember, uh, back in the 1950s, uh, five young men uh, went as missionaries together in a small plane to the jungles of Ecuador. And they wanted to bring the gospel to an unreached tribe, the Alca Indians, very, uh, very uh, um, warlike tribe, dangerous tribe. But they wanted to bring the gospel to them. And they did. They came down to do that. They tried to to uh, build bridges, and they were attacked, ambushed, and slaughtered, every one of them, each of the five. Unresisting, they had no weapons. 
One of them was Jim Elliot. His widow took their little daughter with her, subsequently went back to that village that had killed her husband in order to live among them and bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And the village, ultimately, was one to Christ. Now that's loving your enemy. And that mirrors something of God's love for us because there's not one in here who loves the Lord who is not in one sense or another, at one time or another in your life, been a prodigal. Prodigal son or daughter? A Jonah, as I have been. We've spoken of the mercy of God, but the purpose of God embraces all things. The whole narrative of the book of Jonah. You see, God's will orchestrates all his creatures and all their actions. The wind, the wave, the lot, the creature. You think about it. I've been on a tossing deck in a hurricane in the North Atlantic, typhoon in the North Pacific, and through cyclones in the South Pacific. I can tell you this, that it, Lots, with, and no matter how they're formed, um, they may not be like dice that we have, but lots, however they're formed, it's hard to toss them on a pitching deck and not have them scatter everywhere. How can you have the lot fall on Jonah? There's only one way. God made it happen. He orchestrates everything. <sighs> well, he was found out. But you see, God's will brings about his intended outcomes. Calm sea was representative of it. Jonah was safely in custody, <laughs> being conveyed to the shore. It would take a little while. Go to your corner and think about that for a while, you know. Go to your room. He had to. Next, next Lord's Day, we'll look at what his prayer from that fish's belly was. But, or sea creature, probably more than a fish. But... But uh, by the way, I'll just say, and I'll mention it next week, he didn't write it down at that time. He didn't have some parchment and some uh, a bottle of ink and a quill and, and a light to see by and, all, and none of that. But he had time to think and to pray and to ruminate on these things and to compose. And as we'll see in two weeks from now in chapter 3, he was of a somewhat different mind when he was disgorged. That's a little unceremonious way to uh, <laughs> disembark. Um, but he was ready then to proceed. But God does bring about his intended outcome. Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, as you know, that well-known verse, verse 28, that God works all things to the get together for the good, all things together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's for us that God is orchestrating all things. Voltaire is famous for a quote, I believe it's Voltaire, who said, if there is a God, then he is the devil. Why would he say that? Well, he made some inappropriate assumptions, didn't he? Decided that either God, in the face of evil, in the face of all the, that is wrong and harmful and hurtful in the world, he is impotent to do anything about it and therefore is not God. Or else he must, if he's able to do about it, he must be in complicity with it 
or not care about it and let it keep going or even causing it, provoking it, in which case he's no God, he's the devil. You see the reasoning of Voltaire, but what was wrong with that reasoning? He didn't understand that God gives us choices that, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but God gives us choices that are real choices that have eternal consequences for us. And he makes choices, and his choices include and envelop under its umbrella all of ours, and so that he ultimately is able to draw a straight line with a crooked stick. And his choices were made in eternity past because he is, after all, God. And so Joseph could say to his brethren in Egypt, those brothers, if you will, who had betrayed him, sold him into slavery, written him off, he could say to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, the saving of many souls as it is this day. And Peter on the day of Pentecost could stand before the crowd and say, God, by his determined purpose beforehand, delivered over his son unto death, and you by wicked hands have taken and slain. Human responsibility and choices. And God's overall, his choice and his overall sovereignty over all things. The Bible teaches both. I often hear it said, if God wants you to do something and you won't do it, he'll just find someone else to do it. How do you think Jonah would answer that question? <laughs> and... Uh, I think I had to learn that lesson too, my friends. We've spoken of the mercy and the purpose of God. Finally, the call of God to his servants is both holy and sovereign. Verse 2, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And in chapter uh, 4, verse, uh, verse 2, we read... Uh, the verse I'd read before. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. But Jonah didn't get it. The mercy that was implicit in God's commission to him to send Jonah to preach against Nineveh and had within it the implicit call to repentance. It's like when my children were small, you know, and, and they'd be making a commotion upstairs and I'd say, stop that, and it would keep going after a little bit, and I'd say, I'm going to come up there in about one minute. They knew what that meant. It'd get very quiet. Now, I didn't have to go up there. And they understood I didn't have to go up there. <laughs> what was in that second statement? I'm going to come up there in about one minute. Implicitly, if you don't quiet down. <laughs> Stop whatever it was you were doing, fussing with one another or, or uh, making too much noise. Uh, there is implicit in that. God, in other passages, tells us that if I proclaim judgment against a city and it repents, I will relent and not send against it the judgment I had said. 
Does that, outs- that mean God's will has changed? No. It means that his, his uh, dealing with us changes toward us in that, in that context of what we're doing. Instead of his hand of judgment on us or chastening, it now becomes a hand of mercy. But even in the chastening for his people, it's merciful. And in eternity past, he had planned it all before. God is that kind of a God. Um, the sweeping scope of the narrative talks about it, but, no, but uh, Jonah had missed that God was even then being merciful and long-suffering to Israel. Because it was Israel who had been given all of these benefits and continued in their defiance and rebellion against such a loving and gracious God. God hallows his name among the heathen. Verse 16 tells us, um, we read, At this the men, the sailors, greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now you need to understand, they were afraid before. This was no ordinary storm. These are, these are experienced sailors. I've been in a lot of gales and storms. But there were a couple, three, that uh, I've just told you about that were storms of storms. And uh, the destroyer I was on in each case, uh, or in one case a frigate, were very small compared to that storm. And it was frightening. Sailors were frightened in that storm. Peter and the experienced fishermen in the Sea of Galilee were frightened at the storm they were caught up in. By the way, Joseph is from, the son of Amittai is from Gath-Hefer. You know where that is? It's in Galilee. It's six miles from Nazareth. (laughs) Very close. Very close. But you see, as frightened as those sailors in each case were of the storm, Peter and his compatriots here, the, the uh, Phoenician sailors, they were more frightened at the calm. Jesus says, peace be still. There's a great calm, and we're told his disciples are scared to death at that. They're frightened of the storm, but the sudden calm is absolutely overwhelming. What do we see in, in Revelation chapter 4 of the turbulence of the waves that's pictured from the human point of view in, in chapter 17? But, but here in chapter 4 of Revelation, you see a sea is as glass before the Lord God. That is sobering. And the sailors from Joppa were terrified the greatness of such a God. And they take vows. They don't know what they're doing or how to do it. They only do it the only way they know how. They make sacrifices best they know how, but they know that this is a great God to be reckoned with. By the way, how did Jonah know about that? To include it in the book, he wasn't there anymore. He'd sunk beneath the waves. He'd been swallowed by the creature. How do you know about that? I'll suggest something to you. They turned right back and went back to Joppa. How do I know that? Well, I don't know for sure, but I can be very confident because they were merchantmen. They were on their way to Tarshish, the other end of the Mediterranean. They were now left without a cargo, either of personnel or of things, material. They're all going over the side, including Jonah. 
They had no reason to finish that, that voyage. And their ship had been damaged. Of course, they'd go back. When they did, they would tell a tale, a whale of a tale. <laughs> and Jonah's notoriety would proceed before him. God hallows his name among the heathen, but God demonstrates both justice and mercy to his own. Friends, the great question is not how could God show mercy to Nineveh, but rather, in the first place, how can God show mercy to Jonah? And if we are honest at the promptings of the Spirit of God in our hearts, we have to ask, how can God be merciful to me? Because every one of us has secrets in our hearts of hearts. We wouldn't want videotaped and spread across the skies for all to see. Every one of us, without exception. I don't know what you've done. I have no idea. I don't need to know. God already does. But he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How? On what grounds? Well, the God of the Muslims, Allah, simply sets aside his justice in order to show mercy. But he makes no promise that he has to keep. But our God is a God of faithfulness. He does not change. He is a God of chesed, covenant faithfulness and mercy. And he cannot deny himself. He cannot lie. He says that of himself. He is a just God, a holy God, and he must and will punish sin because he's so holy and good that he can't just look on evil and people doing things to one another and more importantly to his name and say, oh, well, boys will be boys. He's not that kind of a God. It does matter when he sees the injustices that we do to one another. And he must punish our sin. <laughs> but he loves us in Christ from before the foundation of the, of the earth. If we're his, his chosen ones. And, and he provides the seed of the woman that he promised immediately after sin entered the world. In the Garden of Eden. And he says that one would come who would crush the serpent's head. Though wounded himself. And bring about. The reconciliation of God with his people and the death stroke and the outpoured wrath of God fell upon Jesus on the cross as he willingly said, Lord, let the sin of your people, let the judgment of the sin of your people fall upon me. The Apostle Paul says, God made him to be sin." who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, the great transaction, our sin upon him, his righteousness upon us. And when he cried, to tell us thy, and conquered death with those words, oh, he'd be in the grave a little longer, but by those words had finished it and conquered death, and it was, as Peter would say at Pentecost, impossible for death to hold him. Rose into heaven after having for 40 days appeared to his disciples repeatedly, commissioning us to go into the world and disciple the nations, teaching 
the, them to obey, that is to bring into conformity with everything Christ has commanded. What's that? The whole counsel of God, the whole of the Bible. That means you and I are both missionaries in a mission field if we know Jesus all of our lives until we see him face to face and we'll be like him in that moment. In the meantime, we're on a mission, brothers and sisters. A mission to Kennesaw and surrounding communities. A mission across our nation. A mission to our world. And there are people that we'd rather not have to think that we're responsible to take the gospel to them. Uh, maybe because they know our faults and we'll feel like hypocrites, you know the solution to that? Tell God. Admit it. Ask him to cleanse us, forgive us, and change us, and then to use us in spite of ourselves. Perhaps it's because we really don't care about them. You know the solution to that? Acknowledge that as sin before God, that we don't care for others like he does. And in that way, we do not reflect the heart of our gracious God. And then ask him for that heart that reflects his own. We say we don't know how to go about it. You know the solution to that? Lord, I don't know how to do it. Tell him that. But I want to. Help me want to. And then provide the opportunities and knowing how. We may not be very skillful, and we may not know a lot of the answers. I know what that's like. You say, you're a professor of missions, emeritus. That's right. And I, don't know, I know what it is, confession, to be in an airport, the international airport in Sao Paulo, and to have another Naval Academy alumnus, a little older than I, come by, notice my ring, and start foul-talking about Christianity. And I know the impetus, the, the instinctive uh, desire to just want to say nothing. And I know what it's like to confess that and in my heart and see him give words that I never knew where they could possibly have come from. Because in all my study, I never prepared them. Because Jesus said to his disciples, as he sent them out two by two, he said, uh, you'll be dragged before kings and governors. He said, don't worry about what you're going to say beforehand. Don't worry about it. It'll be given to you. When you speak, it won't be you. It'll be the Spirit of God speaking through you. Jonah needed to learn that. As a young man, I needed to learn that too. I won't share that story today, perhaps another day. But when I was a boy, growing up in a Christian home, coming to Christ early in my life, wanting to be an evangelist and preacher, back then, our family then had went through a wrenching, heart-wrenching tragedy. And I was angry at God. I kept it in, to myself. Soon as I had graduated from high school, I meant no disrespect to my parents, I fled from the presence of the Lord and boarded a ship. And I'm conflating it and headed to the opposite end of the earth in South Asia. We're in the turmoil and the maelstrom of combat in the jungles of Southeast Asia.
the God who sought Jonah found me. Brothers and sisters, he finds you. Let's pray.